Welcome to the Hyper Voice. I'm your host, Stephen Morioka, and today I am joined by Alexander Hill. Alola. Alola. And joining us today is our 2013 U.S. National Champion and recently crowned regional champion in San Jose, Gavin Michaels. Hey, good to be here. You know, for a second there, I thought you were going to say 2013 San Jose champion. It's like, oh boy, man, that would have been <laughs> Where's not right. Where's my head at, huh? <laughs> Yeah, 2013 was the year that happened a while ago. Yeah, kind of crazy to think about. We're almost in uh, 2017 now. End of the year here. Calendar year here, at least. Yeah. But Gavin won regionals. Pretty cool run. You got, you're on stream a lot because it was officially <laughs> streamed. I thought uh, the stream was excellent. They showed a lot of good matches, a lot of good picks out there. Uh, good top cut from San Jose, too. Gavin, uh, you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah, so you just want me to go through my top cut games real quick? Yeah, if you'd like to, that'd be great. Yeah, sure thing. So, I started off with who I thought was going to be my hardest team matchup, which was against Alberto Lara. I mean, I don't think I need to introduce anyone to Alberto. <laughs> Dude's been killing it on the West Coast ever since he started, back in like uh, early 2015, late 2014. So, the reason I was so scared of this matchup is that I'm super reliant on... Uh, using Neverending Nightmare to just wipe out Tapu Lele and not ever have to deal with it. But the problem was, his Tapu Lele had Focus Sash. And you cannot Oko Tapu Lele through Focus Sash. Trust me, I tried. <laughs> but made yeah. it also really tough. We don't have Mega Kangaskhan anymore. Yeah, dude, it sucks. Uh, but also what was annoying was that his Tapu Koko used Guardians of Alola. <clears throat> So I was just wrapping my head around this all night since I had played him in Swiss and Harrison, who had been using, we've been using the same team. Uh, we both lost to him in Swiss. So it's like, man, what the, what can we even do here? So eventually I figured out the game plan of, I just lead Mimikyu and Porygon 2, and I just let Porygon 2 die turn one, which not intuitive, but I just wanted to force him to use resources while I get one Shadow Claw in on Lele. And just try to get enough momentum to trick room to go from there. It was tough, though. Uh, I believe that you said that was the only matchup you used Mimikyu in? Only one, because Mimikyu was dedicated, okay, this is what I use if I play Tapu Lele or something exceedingly dumb. Like, or, like Eevee. It was there to, it would have beaten Eevee with Taunt. How does it beat Eevee with Taunt, that is? I guess it prevents the Baton Pass after the uh, Eevee Mancy? That's part of it. Also, when you partner it with Fake Out, you're able to get much more free turns in. <laughs> Plus, uh, with Flame Orb, Hariyama is able to just put in damage even after it gets the boost. Like, I still KO it through the boost, which is very helpful. Yeah, something that your team helped me uh, kind of realize was the buff that Flame Orb uh, kind of received this generation because of the reduction in burn damage. Oh yeah, it's really strong right now, and I'm not sure why you would use any item on any other item on Hariyama. Uh, Guts is really strong right now, and there are sometimes when if they have a Tapu Bulu, Hariyama just doesn't take any damage and just essentially has a choice band for free. Yeah, you even had like your own Tapu Bulu on the team at some point, I believe, in an earlier version. Yep. Uh, yeah, Tapu Bulu was originally on there. Uh, a lot of the spots just shifted around a bit um at one point i think it was an executor ultimately deciding on trampa for reasons i think we can get into later and we've kind of gone over the first half of porygon 2 hariyama and mimikyu so i kind of want to ask you how did how where did this team come from in terms of its origins how did it develop to what it is now and i guess the other three members could you tell us those three and then just tell us you know the development why you decided to use it for san jose 2 yeah, absolutely. So, how this entire team started off was Harrison Sailor linking me a PS replay of some random dude who was using Hariyama, Porygon 2, Magnuson. So, those three make sense. The other three were Shiantic, Wishiwashi, oh, sh and Sandcastle. Yeah, however you pronounce it. I don't even remember <laughs> Sandcastle's name, but it's Sandcastle. Palisand. And Harris oh, Palisand. Palisand. Yeah, Palisand. I was testing that stuff for like three weeks. Um, so what ended up happening there was he was like, hey, dude, I think this is actually really good. And 
if I haven't, if I don't know, didn't know Harrison like I knew Harrison, I would have said you're crazy. But Harrison's been right about early medicals every single year he's played, like from 2012 to 2016. He was telling me in the beginning of 2016, dude, you got to use Gengar Kyogre. This thing's really good. It's like I, I didn't believe him. It sounded trash. Then, hey, turns out Gengar Kyogre was okay. <laughs> so I basically knew going in, I would just agree to whatever Harrison was saying. And I did not see anything in the team, but just by using it, it's like, okay, Hariyama, Porygon 2, and Magnezone, which we just arbitrarily gave specs, but it turns out to do some really cool things. It was like, okay, this part is strong. Everything else makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I think the first thing that we decided on was I was like, okay, Wishiwashi just does not work here. We need to, I mean, we said Shinotic was awful because it was, but we had no idea what to replace it with. I think we were trying Parasect. I think we were trying Parasect there, but it doesn't get Seed Bomb, which is annoying. Uh, so I said, okay, what if we try Spider? This thing does crazy damage. I think I decided on it after losing to one of those Choice Band Spider Pelipper teams on PS. And I was oh, like, yeah. oh. And yeah, Water Bubble just does so much for it, and it just does just preposterous damage to me. Uh, and didn't you also kind of use it uh, as a way to deal with Torkoal Lilligant just because of how little it takes from fire damage? Yeah, I mean, that was sort of the team's main way to deal with it at the time. I developed better answers as the time went on, but like, definitely, it takes definitely. 30% from an eruption, which I think is really funny. Like, it's just like, oh, you used all this effort to use one eruption and it did nothing. Congratulations. Yeah, it's so much different compared to eruptions from last year. Oh, yeah. Very different. And where did the Drampa come from? I'll get to the Drampa in a second, because that was the last change. Like, we decided on that a week before the event, max. Like, right after London. But, yeah, so, Mimikyu, we were floating around there as, like, an alternative trick room setter. But I think what really decided, what Solus on Mimikyu was just saying, hey, we can just Oko Tapu Lele. And we were having some serious problems with Taunt Tapu Lele, because we just had no way to beat it. Just, so you're just like, okay, we're just going to lead Mimikyu Porygon 2 every time. Just one-shot it and be good. So, so like Alex was saying earlier, that Drampa slot used to be a top, right? Um, and the main thought there was, hey, this team is really Gastrodon weak. What beats Gastrodon? I know, Tapu Bulu. But unfortunately, Tapu Bulu really didn't fit into the hard trick room mode of the team. And I didn't really have enough other resources to really support a fast mode. So it was just sort of decisively mediocre against Gastrodon. Uh, so we were trying to look at, okay, what are some trick room options that we can use here? Um, Executor I mentioned, but I think Harrison was just going through, okay, what's slower than Gastrodon? And he was like, oh, Drampa gets Energy Ball. And as soon as he said that, we both were just like, yeah, 100%, we're going to use Drampa. We didn't have a single dad afterwards. She's like, oh yeah, that's perfect. And then we we're just like, okay, what other moves do we want? Well, we need Draco Meteor, obviously. And it's like, well, Fire Blast lets you Oko, Tapu Bulu, and maybe Celestila. It's like, do you really miss Hyper Voice? The answer is not really. So it's just like, okay, we're going to go with that. And like, the entire point of Drampa is to just man mode all those Gastrodon, Arcanine, uh, I guess you say Gigalith. But, like, it's really that Gastrodon Arcanine core, where it's just like, I'm just gonna last through this entirely. And I think it was super effective at doing that. I used Drampa way more than I thought I would in this tournament, and every time he was just doing so much. Uh, and you haven't really mentioned the ability choice on it, because Drampa has a lot of viable abilities on it. Uh, and so you yeah. went with Cloud9. What exactly caused you to go with that? I think the main motivation behind Cloud9 was that uh, Drampa partnered with Mimikyu. If you had Cloud9, it literally let you auto-win against uh, Torkoal Lilijin, because Mimikyu would be faster than Lilijin without the Chlorophyll boost. So you could just taunt it, Draco Meteor the Torkoal, and nothing bad could happen. Um, and just incidentally, turned out that it was actually super useful against Gigalith, which really paid off for me during the tournament in a way that I didn't expect as I played uh, Arvin Roman twice. So, yeah. I remember seeing you Draco Meteor into that Tapu Bulu swap, which switched into 
a gigalith, and the gigalith uh, just kind of disappeared. I don't really know what happened. He kind of vanished with the sand, and uh, Drampa took a little bit of life orb recoil, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things about using a team like this is it's hard trick room, and I feel like how most people approach hard trick room is they think that the person using hard trick room is dumb as bricks, and that they're not going to make a single prediction, they're not going to try to punish a switch, and they're just going to stay in with the trick room on and uh, one of the trick room abusers forever. But if you just think a little bit about, okay, what would I do here? You can go for some plays that are really difficult to punish, but can get you some amazing reward. Like we were saying there with Drake meeting the Tapu Bulu, I just felt like the Tapu Bulu wasn't doing anything, and it was scared of the Fire Blast at the same time. It's just, it made so much sense for him to try to stall it out by switching. It was like, okay, I'm just going to Drake a Meteor here, since worst case scenario, I take 30 from a Woodhammer, and I'm fine taking 30 from Woodhammer. Would you say that this team kind of fit your play style, where you play a bit aggressively? Is that kind of how you like to play the VGC games? So, I feel like my play style really adjusts depending on the team. I mean, last year, the team that I made that was most successful was uh, the team that John used to get second at Worlds, and that team basically involved no reads. It was just going for hard locks. So, I feel like I'm just able to adapt to this style better, but what this team did do that I like, more so than necessarily being aggressive, was punishing potential switch-ins and really covering that. And that's something that I think that I'm particularly good at. So that might be a reason why I performed better with this team than others did in practice. Since I ended up handing this team to a lot of people during practice, just say, hey, test this out. And most people said, I cannot use this for the life of me. Oh God, oh God. Maybe it also just speaks volumes to how great of a player you are. And also, is there any sort of familiarity with this type of uh, hard tricker mode? Kind of like what you top cut worlds with when you were a senior back in 2012? Yeah, dude. Um, this is really... So it's the same sort of hard trick room thing as I used in 2012. But I think what makes it a little bit different is this team is just 100% reliant on getting trick room up. It's a one trick pony and it's just abusing the fact that people in the meta aren't really prepared for it. Whereas I'd say that the 2012 trick room team I had was a bit more dynamic where it's like, okay, how's this person going to try to stop getting Trick Room up? How do I play against it? Can I survive outside of Trick Room? Stuff like that. With this, it's just like, okay, I know that you don't want to invest the resources to prepare for it. So I'm just going to win. And this team definitely had a lot of matchups where it just felt like auto wins, where if I just played in a non-stupid way, I would just win. And Spider was a big help in that. But uh, yeah. So I feel like even though it's the same archetype, it plays a lot differently than what you would expect. A question that uh, I've just been wondering because I've yet to experiment with it myself, uh, but I have not tried using multiple Z-moves on one team, and I know that your team did have two Pokemon with Z-Crystals on them. Did you feel like that restricted you, or did you just like having the option to have like whatever came up uh, in the battle? I mean, let's be real here, uh, there was definitely a restriction on there, but Mimikyu wasn't something that I brought too much, but it just got so much mileage out of Neverending Nightmare, with what I said, the team really needs uh, that one shot on Tapu Lele. If I'm able to get that one shot on Tapu Lele, usually I don't need the additional power from Hydro Vortex in order to uh, do a lot of work, but the Hydro Vortex on Spider just did so much. Like, what it did was it allowed me to secure KOs, which obviously, if they protect and they're at low enough HP, hey, surprise, you're not going to live through this. But what I especially liked it for was uh, it really punished Intimidate switch-ins, since a lot of people would say, okay, I'm just going to switch in this Mon for Intimidate so I can survive this. And you're like, nope, I'm just going to use Hydro Vortex on it. So even if you protect then liquidation KOs the next time. And if you don't protect, hey, I get the KO. So it just really allowed me to get that lock. Plus, you could KO water types, and if you're up against a Marowak in, in rain, you can one-shot it through protect. And it's just like, that's just nuts to me that you can one-shot a Pokemon through protect. 
Yeah, there's it's like a faint plus Oko move just in combo, but it's just because the water moves coming from that spider are unbelievably strong. You're basically starting out every attack by saying, okay, this is super effective. And it's yeah. just... <laughs> it's unreal. Water bubbles are just proving to be a really, really strong ability. And it showed because both you and uh, Enosh had it in... Both had a, a Rockwinid that is in the finals. Uh, do you want to talk about playing Enosh again in a rematch in another finals? Oh, yeah. So... I mean, I think that everyone watching the stream and certainly at the event had a sort of sinking feeling in their gut, like, yeah, Anash is probably just going to steamroll his way to finals, since I think everyone pretty much agreed that he had the best team at the event, where it's like, okay, this seems really solid, he's just crushing everyone, there doesn't seem like anyone who can stop him, and uh, those who could were just not put in positions where they could. Where it's like, okay, I respect you, Mitchell, but it's just like, everyone just assumed Anosh would steamroll, and he did. Um, so I had a little bit of prior experience with Anosh's team. He actually um, sent a pace spin of the team he was thinking of using in a chat I was in the night before regionals. And it was pretty much the exact same thing, but with Cartana over Celestila. So I was able to do some calcs, figure out, okay, what do I want to do here? And I guess it seemed like that. It's just like, there's no better game plan than to just go for hard trigger mode and hope. And Anosh is a really solid player. So it was obviously really terrifying and like, oh god, I'm 1-1 away from winning, but it's against who I think is the toughest opponent to beat in this tournament. But it also does sort of get your heart pumping a little bit, which is good, since I don't think I would have played as good as I did in that finals against anyone else. Well, except for a mistake game two early on that cost me, but we're going to forget about that. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. You don't want to have to play that well, if that makes any sense. Like, I would have much rather played a no-name player like Aaron Zhang in finals. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it proved to be a good show. You know, uh, the commentators, I think Evan and Ray were on at that time, and... All they were asking for before you guys even started, they were hoping to go to game three, and you guys gave us all three games. And, yeah, I thought, you know, really, really smart play on your end on the games you won, at least. Yeah. Okay, can I just say what I was thinking that game two that I lost horrifically? Please do. So, the whole idea of it was I wanted him to, I wanted to bait out his uh, tectonic rage, just so that if I bait at the Tectonic Rage, his spider just loses so much of its ability, since I don't really have to be afraid of the stockpile, since he doesn't really want to set that up, because he can't heal back up to full, so that limits his options, I can just focus down on the Feeny. So saying, okay, I'm just going to switch to spider, take enough that I can take a Moonblast, but then he crit, and with that crit, I was put into Moonblast range, and I just lost all ability to do anything. So it was probably an overly risky play, but there was some thought behind it. One small question I have comparing you and Enosha's and Araquanids was uh, the choice of Leech Life versus Lunge. I believe you had Leech Life on yours, and do you still stand by that, or uh, which move would you say you prefer like as of right now? I don't stand by it. I think that Lunge was a better decision. Uh, I mean, you could tell just in the finals, it's like, man, I wish I had lunch here to punish his Araquanid. Just make the end game a lot easier here. I think that it didn't really matter to me because there were very few situations when I was using Araquanid where it's like, huh, maybe I don't want to use a water move. Like, that's, <laughs> that's not a thought you have. Because it's like, even if your bug move is super effective, it's like, yeah, liquidation is still stronger. Like, it's just crazy. You need to be... You, uh, against something like Slowbro before you're like, oh yeah, my bug move. I want to use that. <laughs> so it's a minor difference, but I think his decision in lunge was a better one for sure. Yeah, it's just nice to get that little bit of, uh, not really an intimidate, but the minus one, just taking that for free on even resisted hits or just to slow down some offensive Pokemon on the opponent's end uh, can be really helpful. But like you said, there are very rare opportunities where you are not clicking the water move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah, pretty much it. 
uh, I know for, uh, this is, I just wanted to add this for my personal experience. Like, uh, Steven mentioned that the commentators wanted to see three games and I was just like sitting there like, uh, also kind of wanting three games cause I wanted to see you two just go at it as much <laughs> as possible because these two teams were so interesting. Uh, and then, uh, my mom was like, it's time for dinner. And I'm just like, no mom, I, I can't come up. Right now. Like, <laughs> it's like the middle of game three and like Gavin is down. You don't realize that Gavin is down right now. And then. I can't explain the whole situation to her. I'm like, uh, but I just, it was such an amazing set to watch and it was really exciting. Uh, and, uh, I believe you said that you're a huge fan of watching this format and I am so far already. It's been a lot of fun to watch these great streams. Oh yeah. This format is just so much fun to play. Like that game three in particular was probably the most I ever had to think playing Pokemon that I can remember. Cause yeah, I was pretty down throughout the entire time, but like, I was just able to capitalize on one mistake Anosh made, which was not punishing my switch to Magnezone properly. But even then, that's one mistake over a 17 turn game, where it's not like we were making autopilot decisions. It's like, okay, I'm not going to protect here so that I can protect later. I'm going to try to get this chip damage in right now. And in a game where there's so many of those decisions, I think only making one mistake is honestly pretty crazy. And it's just like, it really, this format really feels like it's back and forth as opposed to 2017, where after turn one, you're just like, oh, or sorry, 2016. Like, I think we all felt at certain times during 2016, where it's like, oh yeah, I just lost that turn one. Nothing more I can do. There's just too much. And yes, sometimes those games <laughs> just went so quickly. They were like sometimes just six turns in length. And you mentioned this game was 17 turns, which gives so much more interaction between the two players. And that's what we'd like to see. We like to see players, you know, either making comebacks or, uh, you know, consistently outplaying them to get a win. And it's really cool to see these longer games. I have to agree there. I like seeing the more defensive play styles like that. Let's players interact some more and... Even though we're starting to see the metagame take shape, are you guys tending to see... Are you guys liking the variety so far? Do you think it's getting stale at all, even though we're only about a month into it? I don't think that you can make the argument that the metagame is stale right now, considering what the top two teams were. Like, exactly. Are people uh, gravitating more towards what they consider to be standard just because of how the past couple formats have played out? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that that's not a winning strategy where you just see so much stuff where you're just like, oh, that's really weird. That does so well. Like, hell, out, even outside of finals, look at a team like Arvin's, where it's just like, that's just, it has some standardish mods, like you have the Tapagoko and the P2, of course, but then there's just, there's just a Gigalith there. It's just, and a Gudra. <laughs> and that got top four from a player who isn't really that experienced. So I think it can just show that there's so much room for creativity here. And while the teams you play against might be stale, they're stale for an incorrect reason. They're stale because some people are lazy, but that's always going to happen. But there's no reason that you should be using these really... I wouldn't say it's bad to use common teams, but you shouldn't be using the same thing that everyone else is and expecting to perform particularly well since... Uh, Generally, I'd say that mirrors are extremely volatile matchups, and there's a lot of room to outplay people in mirrors, don't get me wrong. I just like to get an advantage when team building. I completely agree with that point. I made it like my mission through all of uh, last year when the teams were a little bit more centralized to just avoid mirrors as much as possible, because uh, I like to have the team matchup advantage. And I also think that I agree with you that I think 2016 kind of broke some people uh, in terms of team building. They just, they lost the ability to kind of think on their own. And now they're just clinging to these teams like, oh, wow, this core is a really common core now. I should just try running that and tweaking it and seeing how far that can take me instead of, you know, searching out new things. There are so many different combinations that haven't been explored yet. This meta is so new. I think people should be trying these new Pokemon, trying out old Pokemon combined with new Pokemon and just seeing where these new strategies will take them before they just kind of give up and try what's standard. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree with that. Right, there's there's just so much room for creativity in this format, and it's really starting to show how you, you just look at 
some of the differences in your teams, and even there were similarities between you and Inash in the finals, and, and you know a few pieces there, but you just see so many different Pokemon and team compositions just over uh, San Jose this past weekend, and looking back to London as well, you see a whole di- bunch of different kinds of teams in terms of variety, in terms of strategies, that it makes makes uh, the rest of 2017 seem really, really exciting to see what else people can come up with, what other teams and strategies people are going to use, and what other Pokemon might start to find um, their niche as we move on and Pokemon Swain popularity. Yeah. So I guess another thing I wanted to ask you, are there any other Pokemon right now that you think are kind of underrated and under the radar that uh, could potentially break out in the coming weeks or months? I think that one of the more underrated Pokemon in the format is Gigalith. What I think Gigalith does really well is it really acts as the king of Trick Room. It pretty much, inside of Trick Room, against every other Trick Room mod, you'd say, it just deletes it. It doesn't care. Oh, you have an Araquanid? Okay, Stone Edge, bye. Marowak, same thing. Goodbye. <laughs> eh, Torkoal? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, it's not working out. So I think that just having that is really cool. And I think what you saw on Arvin's scene with the Continental Crash, that just gives you a lot more depth because it gives you that strong neutral hit that puts Gigalith on par with uh, other Trick Room mods in terms of neutral damage, which I'm a big fan of. I think what you're also starting to see is uh, you're starting to see a spike in Kartana usage. And I think that that's interesting since Kartana is one of those Pokemon where it's so hard to tell right now whether it's going to actually end up being good or we're going to look back and be like, man, remember when we thought Pyroar was good? Like, I'm worried <laughs> that we're going to get a similar experience to that. Uh, last thing I'll say is I think that Hariyama is real good. I think you're going to start to see more of it as people start to realize that Porygon 2 is arguably the best Pokemon of the format. Um, five, the top five teams at San Jose all used it. And it can just do so much that I think being able to just take it out, put that immediate KO pressure on it, since this is a Pokemon that's hard to knock out even when you double target it. So I think that you're going to start to see more Hariyama as people start to realize the utility of fake out and massive damage. I think people were scared off of Pokemon like Hariyama earlier in the format because they saw all these fairy type Pokemon and... Uh, people expected Tapu Lele to be really popular, kind of nerfing Fake Out, but you seem to kind of find a way to control Tapu Lele at least as much as you can when it's not running Focus Sash and Taunt at the same time. But you found a way to, you know, really make Hariyama thrive so that it can get rid of what is becoming the most popular Pokemon in the format, Porygon 2. Because, yeah, like you said, not much is going to take it out as fast as Hariyama. Nothing really can. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your Hariyama... Uh, since Hariyama actually has a really strong move pool, there are a lot of mm-hmm. moves that it can run. Uh, what led you to use the four moves that you chose? Some of them might be a little bit more obvious, but there are obviously good moves that you left out because you can only fit in so many moves. Uh, what led you to the four that you ended up choosing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that fake out and close combat, you would. Just, I don't think anyone's going to use uh, a difference in those two moves. You're always going to use them. That's why you're using the Pokemon. Knockoff also, so knockoff is really good coverage just in general. You hit ghosts with it, which you can't do with normal and fighting moves. Spoiler. Um, but what it's, <laughs> you do lose that, don't hit fairies, but you hit pretty much everything else usually. And what I think is really cool about it is, uh, it gives you the opportunity to one shot Marowak. And even if you don't one shot it, can get rid of its thick club to the point where it's just not a good Pokemon anymore. So that's really nice. Um, I think the last move is where things start to get really interesting, since, like you said, there are a diversity of options there. So the move that I decided to use was Faint. And the reason I did that was I wanted to really make sure that I could secure these KOs that I was going for. Like, I'm using a really dedicated hard trick room team, I need to make the most out of my turns of Trick Room as possible. And the way I felt I could do that is, even if you protect, I can still get a hint hidden guaranteed. So 
Faint just let me really get those powerful moves in that I was scared I wasn't really able to get in otherwise. So, I mean, there are a couple of other moves there. Like, I'd say, notably, you have Poison Jab and maybe Heavy Slam. And while Poison Jab does get you that one shot onto Tapu Bulu, I felt like it wasn't really necessary just because uh, a close combat plus Ice Beam on it from a Porygon 2 was enough to take it out. And generally, Tapu Bulu really wasn't putting that much pressure on in Trick Room since despite its decent bulk, you'd be surprised how easy it is to just knock it out, especially when you have a Dramp on a Magnuson putting pressure on it. I never really considered Protect, to be honest, uh, just because... I feel like what's so cool about Hariyama is that it forces the opponent to target it. Otherwise, it's just going to run through their team. So the whole point is force the opponent to target it down so you can get the actual Trick Room on in there. So I feel like Protect would just be really counterintuitive for how the Pokemon is supposed to be played, in my opinion. Since I don't want to Protect against a super effective hit, I want to take it, die, and send in my actually the Pokemon that I built Trick Room around. Yeah, and it's also nice how close combat can drop your defenses and just, along with the Flame Orb, uh, let Hariyama go away when it needs to, let in the real guys, and they can kind of start wrecking havoc from there. Uh, I don't know for sure if this is legal pre-bank, but Hariyama does get Wide Guard. I don't know if that's something that it can't get at the moment, but uh, I do know that your team already had Wide Guard, so that there's an obvious reason that you would not yeah. use it. Uh, and you chose to use Wide Guard on Araquanid, which I think is uh, a really awesome choice. You know, some people choose to run a third attack in, like, Poison Jab or another bug move. Or we saw uh, Enosh's team have the Stockpile, which is a really interesting option. And I did like his Araquanid set just a bit more than yours. But I really like uh, Araquanid's ability to Wide Guard because it's uh, an amazing offensive Pokemon that can also support the team now. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a very clear reason why I didn't use Poison Jab, and that's that it does 60% to Tapu Bulu. <laughs> like, you're not one-shotting the Pokemon that your move is times four effective against. Like, why? <laughs> why is that? Why do you think that's worth it? I mean, White Guard is just good general utility. I never really felt... It. I saw Anosh using Stockpile, obviously, but I never really felt a need to emulate that, just for the simple fact that as long as my uh, spider's in there, I want it to be doing as much with my limited trick room turns as it can. I can't really afford to set up a stockpile, have them not protect, and then just waste two turns getting a little bit of a boost. So yeah, that's my thought process there. Why well, guys just, you're right, right guys just such a huge utility right now, just with, you know, you have eruptions going off, rock slide and earthquake are always staple. You have a bunch of people running Discharge because of uh, Celesteel and Marowak paired together often. And, you know, some Arcanine will have Heat Wave as well, or if not all of them. So, you know, I think it's a smart choice on your end. You know, like you mentioned, Poison Jab's not knocking out Tapu Bulu, so what's the point? You're kind of wasting your move slot, and we're li we are limited in these, so you need to make the most out of your choices here. So, again, it was a smart choice. Uh, I want to kind of want to just go quickly go back to your use of faint on Hariyama. I think it's a really strong move in a doubles format, especially where you can allow your partner to utilize breaking any protects or securing some knockouts. Uh, it also breaks focus sashes. I think it's a really powerful move just in general. Uh, usually requires high skill cap to use because if you're blowing that into a move or a switch that isn't doing anything very useful, then, uh, you know, you're obviously not making a, you're not, you're not having a good turn for yourself. So I think faint is a really strong option and you got to be a really good player to use it. And obviously you are. I feel like it's also really team dependent too, you know, since, uh, you're right that faint usually gets really punished by switching into something that can tank an attack easily. But with my team, there's very few things that can tank my attacks easily. I've got three Pokemon that hit hard and a Porygon 2, which also does pretty respectable damage. So very rarely did I feel like, okay, I'm getting abused because of my faint. And I tried to be careful around that. Um, in the semifinals versus Arvin, uh, 
game one, I resisted the urge to use Faint just because I'm like, hey, I want to cover this gigalith switch in. Even though I don't think it's particularly likely, I want to make sure that he can't just switch it in and win. And it's just sort of a risk management tool, I think. you got to figure out the right times to use it. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I know from talking with you earlier, you're also a player that uh, plays really aggressively when you know feint is an option uh, against you. Uh, like you, um, I remember like playing you, I think, one time in 2016 format, and every <laughs> single time I tried to feint you, you just did not protect. You just kind of stood fearlessly in front of it and just attacked <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I respect feint way too hard, which might be a downfall of me as a player, but it's just like, it's an option that is so good that if you're like, oh, that Hariyama or Mian Shout doesn't have anything better to do, odds are it's going to faint. And you just have to say, okay, this is happening, and just don't let yourself get punished by that. Because people want to use faint. People want to be the guy who's like, oh, look at me. I'm cool. I'm breaking their protect. I'm making the big plays. And you just have to understand that and just say, okay, okay, buddy, we're just going to take that. <laughs> <laughs> You want to be that guy making the big plays instead? Yeah, no, you got to make bigger plays than your opponents. That's it. So it's like, even if you're wrong, as long as it's bigger, you're going to end up winning. Trust me. That's how it works. Yeah, this guy's a winner, so he, obviously <laughs> he knows. So I think uh, San Jose was probably your first major event using the new timer system. Did uh, What did you think of it? Did you have any issues with it? Could you speak some volumes about these changes? Did you like them? Did you not like them? So... Okay, so for me, I never had a game go beyond 35 minutes or so. Like, my set in the finals was the longest set I had all tournament. And the reason is that for that is, I'm playing a really aggressive team, which avoids those uh, sort of stalemates. But, I mean, for me, the timer, it didn't necessarily feel longer most of the rounds. Most of the rounds, it felt pretty comparable to what it was in 2016. The only exceptions to that were... Uh, Sometimes the sudden death can get a little egregious, where if you have two, I guess it's just two teams where they aren't designed to take KOs, is the only time where it's just like, technically, you could be there forever, until the game literally ran out. But I honestly didn't mind it too much, since I feel like what they're trying to go for here is they're just trying to make it so that people can't time stall as a strategy. Which, I mean, we're all used to as a way to cover gimmicks, like minimize. And it's like, okay, you're minimizing to plus six, that's cool, I can just sit here forever and win. But I understand that they don't want to do that from a spectator point of view, since, let's be honest, it is sort of boring watching people time stall each other. I feel like that was one of the worst parts of watching 2016, where it's like, like watching Wolf of Worlds, you say, okay, he's taking the full minute on the Volt Switch timer to go out to one Mon. And that's just clearly not okay. So honestly, I'm fine with it because I can't really think of a better solution. I don't think I ever got below seven minutes in my time bank the entire tournament. So one thing you could argue is reducing the time for chess timer. But I know people freak out whenever you suggest limiting how much time they have to think about their moves. So uh, that probably won't happen. I'm pretty fine with the system as is. Having an hour to get a subway, that worked out. Nice. <laughs> Alex, what do you think of timer so far? Uh, it hasn't really been a huge issue. Uh, I agree with Gavin that uh, it's definitely a good, move, uh, good step moving forward to make games more interesting. I do miss the ability to kind of timer stall out gimmicks, uh, but I really haven't seen those teams popping up too often. And, uh, you know, if you really see something like that uh, coming, you just maybe play for it earlier in the game and don't let them get these things set up. Or, uh, I mean, th these things can be avoided in team building uh, a lot easier than people uh, would expect. And so uh, I really haven't run into that issue. I've played at uh, only two premier challenges for Sun and Moon with the timer, but uh, it hasn't been very relevant yet for me. Uh, you know, if you see, like, I I've gotten to a situation where I was being stalled out by Celesteela and I was just like, you I'm not going to like, waste my time, I'm just going to move on to game two and try to steer the set around from there uh, instead of just kind of sitting around and letting time run out like that. I guess that's a different factor, the uh, round timer. But both of those new factors haven't really affected me at all yet, so I would say that it's fine, and I haven't really run into too many troubles with gimmicks. 
Mm-hmm. Plus, I also think, like, in a lot of those sort of stally mirrors, where it's like Celestiella versus Celestiella, you know really early on who's going to win the stall war, since it's like, okay, who got Leech Seed up first, who has more HP, who has a sub up? From there, it's really to say, okay, you're going to win. So I feel like people can make the active decision to just forfeit. Yeah, you're really only hurting yourself if you kind of waste the time when you're bound to lose because you want to have more time to come back in game two or game three or like that. You don't want your game cut short or sudden death or something risking uh, that. Whereas uh, if you give yourself more time to move on to the next game, maybe turn that around and win it and then play a game three, assuming that the stall war is in game one. But you want to give yourself time to just kind of move on if you already know it's a loss. Don't let that loss drag out for like five, ten more minutes than it needs to when you already know the outcome. Right, it's a it's a new style of time management, but people have to start learning how to use that, so... I'll tell you one thing, though. I'm really interested in... Uh, well, one thing I just want to mention beforehand is at Premier Challenges, you can I don't think you can see your opponent's uh, timer, what they have left, but I know you can at uh, tethered events like regionals and internationals, and watching uh, Gavin in finals... Uh, it was just interesting seeing how much less time he spent than Enosh. I, like, I saw Enosh was, like, approaching four minutes and Gavin's still sitting at, like, seven or eight. And I'm just like, <laughs> not, like, not, is, not just in the comical sense uh, that, like, oh, well, he's spending so much more time. But it's just interesting to see, you know, like, play styles. Like, Gavin makes his decisions a lot quicker. Uh, and that's just kind of how he plays the game. Whereas Enosh really thinks through every move and takes, like, all the time that he has to make the right play and it's cool to see uh just how different people how long people make take to make these decisions and i uh it's really interesting i like it yeah i do too i like seeing that difference in the way that different players use their time and you know how quickly they make their decisions so that's a great observation i didn't actually notice uh while watching i'm wondering if gavin noticed while he was playing oh i absolutely noticed uh i mean you mainly notice because just like sitting there it's like man i got nothing to do I'm sort of bored. <laughs> I'm going to play with my plush real quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of the reason for that, though, is, at least for me, uh, when I'm using a team like this, it's fairly linear in the couple of decisions I can make. I can make only, like, maybe four decisions. And it's pretty easy for me to go to my mind and say, okay, does this work? No. Okay, then the rest of it won't work. And just sort of blow up possibilities where it's like, okay, I got two options here. And at a certain point, going with gut feeling, I feel like it's a higher success rate than really overanalyzing everything. Because then you get in your head of, oh, what if this, uh, like, tiny percentage thing happens, luckwise? And that can really mess with you and, like, prevent you from seeing the obvious plays. So, I don't know, I like trusting my gut a little bit more in those situations, since sometimes you just miss an obvious thing happens. Yes, the... You know, when we were all in school, the teachers always told you, go with your first instincts. And I imagine for Pokemon, most of the time it'll pay off as well. So I guess another thing we can kind of talk about here is, if I'm not mistaken, about half and half of the San Jose top cut, half are pretty established players. You know, a lot of these names are pretty recognizable. And a bunch of other ones are kind of new. So... What are you guys? What are you guys thinking about uh, how Sun and Moon has brought out some more players to start out, start competing in this format? I think you're always going to have new gen hype, right? Like 2014, we saw a huge surge in numbers from 2013, um, and I think that's something that we have to bank on. But what's cool about this format is, I'd say it's a definite upgrade compared to 2016. So hopefully, we get to retain a lot of those players who just showed up and said, "Hey, this is cool. I'm doing well with it." And I think that what's really nice about this top cut is you get a combination of things where it's like you have these top players succeeding saying, hey, this is a really skill-based format. And you're also seeing a whole bunch of new faces come in saying, hey, there's so much room for growth here. Anyone can jump in and do pretty well. So having that right there, I feel like it's a really nice sweet spot. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to potential growth uh, because, like you said, the new gen hype. But with a format like this, where it seems so friendly to newer players, they can really, you know, get all the Pokemon in-game, and uh, we've got a new VGC ladder uh, that people can practice on. Uh, it's really kind of pushing people towards staying around and uh, giving it a try, you know, if they enjoy the meta. And like you said, there we've seen 
uh, a bunch of new people doing well. So that might convince them to say, like, hey, I'm really, I'm getting good at this. Like, this is worth investing my time into and I'm enjoying it. So people will start hanging around. Right. And I honestly think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg because a lot of people just some, uh, some haven't had the full time or resources to get their teams ready. And I know like the hardcore players, they will have stuff ready, but you know, maybe some other casuals who are starting to, uh, starting to break into the scene or want to break into the scene, they are just not ready. You know, sometimes it can be difficult to learn if you're brand new. And I think once Pokemon Bank comes out, once more, a little more time has passed with people having Sun and Moon, that we'll start seeing a much larger influx of players attending, say, the next few major tournaments we have coming up, like, uh, maybe not Dallas, that might be a little too soon, but you have, uh, Atlanta, or the Georgia Regional, Anaheim, and what is it? We're in St. Louis in March, I think? I haven't pulled up here. Uh, yeah, we got St. Louis in March, and, uh, like the week afterwards, we have the Australian Intercontinental. Uh, not sure how many people are going to go to both St. Louis and Australia, but I mean, it's possible. They're like neighboring border pieces of land, right? Yeah, no, both are mainly inhabited by criminals. It all works out. Yes, it works out. Anyway, that was announced uh, pretty recently. What do you guys think about that? We're heading, uh, well, the internationals are in Australia next. Well, that was definitely the continent we kind of expected the Oceanic International to be on, but uh, it's cool that it's the next one, uh, and it's uh, finally announced. We were hoping to have it announced a bit earlier, but at least people can start planning their trips now. Yeah, no, it's nice. Like You have a nice uh, three and a half months beforehand. I feel like that's enough time for people to really decide, is this worth me going to? I feel like a lot of people are waiting with faded breath, myself included, about when stipend information is going to be finalized since uh we really don't know it's i'm thinking to myself it's like huh is it worth it for me to go to dallas so i can get a paid trip to australia just trying to figure that out but i feel like a lot of people and i think this is okay are deciding you know what maybe australia and a thousand dollars is just a little bit too much and i'm okay not doing that this time since i think it's totally fine for uh, intercontinentals to be separate and not everyone has to compete at every intercontinental like you shouldn't be forced to go to all four of them so i'm glad that it's as far away as possible if that makes any sense that sounds so bizarre though gavin like competing in one national a year like who would choose to do that hey i mean last year i competed in zero <laughs> and you still made it to worlds yeah so did everyone it seems yeah, so did everyone. <laughs> it's seeming kind of impossible to not impossible, but very unlikely to make it to worlds without a international this year. Yeah, I mean, you gotta hit that five hundred mark. Luckily, I'm I'm halfway there actually, so that's nice. Um, a lot of it, you have to do really well at regionals or uh, do well at a con- intercontinental. And I think a lot of people are just like going for oh, this is my chance to really grind some points, but. I feel like that's sort of the wrong approach to take here, since, yeah, if you grind it out, you can eventually make it to Worlds, but if the reason you got to Worlds is through grinding out an entire season by going to as many events as possible, it how likely is it that you're actually going to perform that well at Worlds, right? I feel like it's fine to limit yourself to a couple of events and say, okay, I need to perform well at some of these, and say, okay... Okay, I'm doing good enough at these to where going to intercontinentals should be more of a matter of, do I think this is worth my money? Do you think that this is a plus EV thing? Since, at least for me, going to San Jose, thanks to how amazing the prize structure is right now, I was able to make the decision of, yeah, I think this is actually worth money for me to go to. I think I'll make my money back. I have a high enough chance to that's a plus EV play. And I think people should be thinking more so in terms of that. It's like, how much is it going to take me to get there, and how likely am I to do well, since our payout's amazing. Like, I'd say it's as good as pretty much every other competitive game now, and I think that people just have to be keeping that in mind. The goal shouldn't be necessarily, I have to play at Worlds or else my season's a failure. It's, let me just see what tournaments I can get to, and if I really perform well at the ones I'm going to, then over time, I'm going to be able to 
say, hey, I can go to London and that's worth my money. And then from there, you're going to be a world's caliber player. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned, you know, like, uh, are you good enough to compete at Worlds? You know, if you uh, compete at a lot of events, maybe Worlds isn't really going to be worth it. And uh, there are people who I think are going to spend a lot of money traveling to a lot of events when they could just save that money to travel to Worlds and just, even if they don't get a Worlds invite, spectate it because... Uh, it seems like that's what a lot of people uh, end up doing is just trying to get a Worlds invite just for the sake of having an excuse to go to Worlds. But if you end up spending more money than you would just traveling to it, uh, you, it might not be worth it in the end. And I agree that uh, it's good to prove yourself by limiting the number of events you go to uh, that you are a strong enough player to uh, make a name for yourself at Worlds and really prove that, you know, you didn't need to go to a ton of events you... Uh, took the ones that were a good opportunity for you and uh, capitalized on them. Right. And I think, like, I think that we can all pretty much say here that it's not that competing at Worlds is really the rewarding experience. It's doing well enough to fit your standards. Like, uh, I might be speaking a bit for you, Alex, but like, um, in 2015, we all know that you missed the Worlds invite when it was a little bit more secluded. 2016, you got it. Uh, you were top 40 in 2016 season, and then you're able to make it through day one and make it to day two. It's like, I'd say that being able to say, hey, I made it, I competed well enough to make it to day two, like, that's an accomplishment. It's not just getting there. That's the satisfying feeling. Yeah, I did uh, mention that to uh, you and a couple guys that it was like my personal goal last season because uh, in 2015, the year that I did miss my world's invite, uh, the top 40 U.S. players made it into Worlds, and I was just, like, shy of it, like, at 40 second or something like that. And uh, I was really a bit bummed when 2016 announced such a low bar. Like, I was looking at it as, like, yes, I will get a Worlds invite, but what does it mean anymore? Like, uh, it was a lot easier to obtain, and so many people were getting a Worlds invite. I really wanted to, like, set extra goals for myself to really prove that you know, I could have made it last year uh, if I had a more consistent season or, uh, you know, I'm a good player now. Uh, if we had the same kind of structure this year, again, I could make it. And I did manage to stay in the top 40 and achieve my personal goal. And then while day two was rough for me, I made it that far. I made it through the gauntlet that a lot of people said, like, day one was open worlds anyway. So, you know, I really felt like I got as much of a world invite as anybody else could have. And while I didn't do well on that second day, I made it there. I made it to the, I guess, highest tier before cut. And that was really cool for me. Yeah, I mean, that's more than I can say. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think your goal this season is, or I guess anyone's goal this season for step one is qualify for Worlds, so reach that 500-point mark. Uh, everyone needs to do that first. And then, I really think what, speak uh, speaking volumes here as, as players, how we really need to, you should really be stressing quality over quantity, in terms of the tournaments that you're attending. So this is, again, going back to what you guys were talking about earlier, uh, traveling to tournaments versus just going to Worlds instead as a spectator, and just seeing the results you'll get uh, playing in Worlds if you had high-quality events prior to that during that same season, rather than, you know, grinding out, uh, just getting point by point, getting that invite, and then, oh, I did nothing at Worlds again kind of feeling. So... People really need to start stressing, you know, putting that pressure on yourself to go to, say, just a few major events. Can you get your world's invite that way? Uh, you'll prove yourself to yourself and to everyone else, your, your quality as a <laughs> player. Sorry, guys. And, um, you know, you really need to be, ha be high caliber and on your mark once you get to that final stage at Worlds. Yeah, like you mentioned there, Steven, it's uh, basically like training, you know, you want to limit your uh, number of events so that when uh, you get to Worlds, you know, you're ready for uh, high pressure play, you know, if you've gone to so many events and you've uh, just kind of done mediocre at them, then, you know, you're expected to probably do mediocre at Worlds, where if you try your hardest and put in all the effort for the few events that you have, you'll, that's great training for Worlds so that you know exactly how much effort you need to be putting in for the largest tournament of the year. And I guess really quickly here, it is, uh, you know, almost the end of December here. And 
I think last year this time we had a bunch of people qualified for Worlds already. <laughs> I just looked at the standings and we only have two from Europe so far. So, you know, I'm liking what I'm seeing from the season um, in terms of points and payouts and what's happened so far. And it seems like we're going to get uh, really high quality players heading into, well, this is speaking now, of course, but I think we'll see uh, really high quality players getting into Worlds this season, uh, seeing how things are going. Yeah, this is a format where with the bar as is, you're going to see a lot of quality players in Worlds without players who might not have deserved it. And at the same time, it's a format that I think most people will agree seems to reward playing well. So just all that put together, I think we're going to see amazing tournaments throughout the years, but especially in amazing Worlds this year. I guess another thing with all the travel anxiety people are having to attend all the other internationals to try and reap the rewards and you know i guess really the end goal here is to get a travel award and a day two or a day one buy so you don't have to play on day one at worlds go straight to day two in the hopes of advancing farther and eventually becoming world champion but we've seen time and time again a lot of great players coming from day one and either winning the whole thing or going really deep so Again, people should stop being so concerned with trying to make day two. You know, maybe you do need the travel award, but really you want to just get to Worlds, focus on your play, focus on playing high-quality Pokemon, especially this season. You know, before we wrap things up, I want to kind of call out Steven on air. Steven, have you actually played any VGC yet? <laughs> yeah, I have. You have? I know I know. recently, um, you know, the past few episodes we've done, I haven't, uh, I hadn't had a team yet, but you know, I got some Pokemon together and I played a little bit of Battle Spot. So unbelievable! All right, I know, right? It's fun though. You enjoying it? Oh yeah, I love it. I've been uh, catching up on streams too, so it's been great to watch, fun to play too. Eh, it's great to hear. I think that's all you can really want to format. Yeah, you know, uh, you go put in so much work to make it to Worlds, and but I mean, uh, the real end game, or at least the highest priority should be having fun you should be enjoying what you're doing and that's kind of why we play pokemon and uh this format is a lot of a lot of fun that's why it's going to motivate people to get world's invites because uh at least me personally and from uh, what i've heard from you guys this format is something worth putting time into it's very fun to play and uh rewards uh high skill and we're just about finished with this episode and I guess before we go, we just want to say congratulations to Gavin again for winning the regional. Was that your first win at a regional? That is my first regional win after like 17 tries, so feels good. My goodness. There we go, guys. First regional win for Gavin. Um, just had to confirm there. But again, congratulations. Thank you for being on the Hyper Voice. I really appreciate your time and your, you being here talking with us. My pleasure. And lastly... This will be our last show for the calendar year 2016. We are probably going to take the winter break between Christmas and New Year's off. So to all our listeners out there, thank you for listening. Thank you to listening for uh, the previous episodes. If you guys have been following along since we've started, we'll return in 2017 after Dallas has ended. So we'll be back in the first week of January or so. And Again, just thanks to all our guests who have been on, and thank you to Alex for uh, being a part of this show. It's been a lot of fun. So we're hoping to continue our show and make it as good, great as possible over the next uh, however long we'll last, but that'll do it for us for this week's episode. Lastly, you guys can find the show on iTunes, uh, subscribe there, leave I don't know if you can subscribe on iTunes. Maybe you can. So, but you can leave us feedback on iTunes. We also have an email where you can leave us some feedback or questions. Um, that is vgchypervoice at gmail.com. And lastly, you can find all of us on Twitter. Uh, Gavin, where can people follow you? They can follow me at KOMVGC. That's com VGC. And Alex, people can follow you. At LexiconVGC. And lastly, Steven, where will we follow you? At Super Morioka. Thank you guys for listening to the Hyper Voice. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next year.